Welcome to the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast, the show focused on the strategic disruption of the status quo in technical organizations, communities, and events. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast. I'm really honored to have my guest, author, uh, author of Animating, I mean, excuse me, Automating Inequality, Virginia Eubanks. Virginia, could you please introduce yourself to the audience? Hi, um, I'm Virginia Eubanks. I'm a writer. I live in the best small city in the United States, Troy, New York. Okay. All right. I'll give you that. (laughs) Um, So I always start by asking two questions. Why is it important to cause a scene and how are you causing a scene? Um, Well, I mean, it's important to cause a scene because... Uh, not causing a scene is voting for the status quo, right? Um, and the status quo is unacceptable. Um, there are uh, too many lives that are um, constrained and destroyed and where, that don't allow people to reach their full potential and unleash their amazing human capacity on the world. And... Um, uh, and by addressing those um, like deep inequalities and harm and traumas, we can make ourselves and everyone else free. So that's why you have to cause a scene. And so how are you causing a scene? So my scene causing these days, uh, (laughs) I'm actually at in the middle of a sort of transition from where in the past I have been both an an organizer and an activist, mostly around welfare rights work, um, but also around community technology work, um, and a scholar to being a long-form journalist, which is a really big shift for me and about like sort of... Um, taking bigger risks around the stories that I tell and learning the skills and um, capacities that I need to um, speak important truths in ways that people can hear them. So my my scene causing has, the, the way I've been doing that has shifted a lot in the last couple of years and I'm still finding my feet. All right. Well, <laughs> isn't that social justice work period? Just fighting your feet. <laughs> so um, I want to read from the, um, just from the, 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 what do they call it? The book cover, the thing, the flip, the, the flap, the flap. <laughs> is that, okay, so I will know what that yes. is. Virginia Eubanks systematically investigates the impacts of data mining, policy algorithms, and predictive risk models on economic equalities and democracy in the in America. I want to you just hmm. okay. So we're gonna oh boy. Okay, one thing you just said that I really want to touch on is because I'm gonna have a guest coming on very soon who grew up in projects, and so when you just talked about welfare. So many people and white people have the narrative that these individuals are lazy, can't do for themselves, um, are living off the system, milking the system, can go out and get a jobs, and all, all these negative anti-black, anti-brown narratives. 
And this individual is going to come on and talk about how actually, particularly with public housing, um, how they got many families, black families into public housing was to say that the black man could not be a part of that family. Hmm. And it went downhill from there. (laughs) And so people don't understand that these are system wide things. These are decisions that are policies that are put into place that run the government of the United States. So uh, we're going to get to some personal things, but I really want to talk since you brought up welfare because we so treat the poor in this country like shit. <laughs> yeah, that's real. And, and and we blame them even I even empathize and people, cause I really tell people I'm, I, I don't hate white people. Please stop saying, please don't think that. But I've learned through the policies of this country not to trust white people by default because that keeps me safe, period. And I find it interesting that so many poor white people vote against, ally against their own best interests in in upholding whiteness. And if they understood, if they ally with other poor people, they would outnumber the 1% by large numbers and could get their voices heard. So I've said a lot, but I really want you to touch on that because I've I've never had anyone on here who could speak specifically to the poor. And I really want to get that message across. Yeah. So yeah, you've um, you've set up a number of big questions. So I'm gonna do the best I can to start addressing them, and I'm uh, just gonna assume that we will continue to unpack this. Yes, exactly. And I won't be able to get to like, oh, what's the problem with racism and classism? Yes. In like three minutes. Um, yes. But we can at least start on it. Um, so let's start with this question of who is on welfare and who is poor. Um, because we have this very specific story in the United States that poverty is an aberration, that it only happens to a tiny percentage of probably pathological people whose um, face has been um, darkened since the 1960s. Um, And that just, we'll start with the facts that that's just not true, that poverty is not an aberration in the United States. It's actually a majority experience 51% of us will be poor between the ages of 20 and 64 at some point between the ages of 20 and 64. And um, nearly two-thirds of us, 64% of us, will be on means-tested public assistance. So that's straight welfare. That's not Social Security. That's not disability. That's not unemployment. That's not reduced price school lunches. That's straight welfare. So Okay, I want to stop you there because can we define what poor is? What is their definition of what who falls into this? Yes. Yep. And so for that, this is at the most limited definition. Exactly. Exactly. Which is that you fall below this arbitrary line that, you know, there's a long history of where how the poverty line got drawn, um, going back to Malia Shanky and the social scientists who decided that um, how we were going to calculate the poverty line was by um, taking uh, what was called, I think, the, the minimum food plan or something like that. So, so this is a period of time in the 60s where food was one of um, people's largest expenses. So she took the minimum amount that you'd need basically to survive for your family and multiplied it by four. Okay. And that became the poverty line. 
So of course, things have changed a lot in the 50 years since the poverty line math was mm-hmm. set. Um, and uh, food is no longer our largest uh, expense for most households. So most households, their largest expenses are things like childcare and housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so other things have become much bigger um, eaters of household budgets than food. So the poverty line itself is wildly inadequate to actually capture poverty. So if you go to what lots of people use as a standard for poverty, like 150% or even 200% of poverty, then actually poverty looks like even more of a majority experience um, mm-hmm. than it is now. But even by that incredibly limited, entirely inadequate measure, still the majority of us will be poor at some point during our adult lives. We'll be below that poverty line. Um, and so I think I want to be really clear about this because I think sometimes I'm misheard in saying that it's a majority issue. I, I do not mean that it affects us all equally or we're all equally vulnerable to poverty. If you are born poor, if you are a person of color, if you are a migrant, if you have physical mobility limitations, if you have mental health challenges, you're more likely to be poor and it's harder to escape poverty once you're there. But one of the things that I think is really important about the way I approach poverty and economic inequality is um, I'm committed to us telling true stories to each other about our experiences with poverty and near poverty as a way of trying to build alliance across these very difficult relationships that have been exploited in order to keep so many of us poor or precarious. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that means taking racism really seriously, like, like you raised, because at least since the 1960s, um, the part of the sort of strategy around dismantling the social welfare state has been playing poor whites and poor people of color off against each other. Um, and that has, for, and I'll just speak to white people here, um, that has meant that our racism has, a, um, has facilitated us producing a social welfare state that is among the worst in the world. And that ends up affecting both poor white people and poor people of color. Um, and so there is um, some really difficult re, uh, rebuilding and alliance building work that we have to do um, in order for us to both acknowledge the widespread reality of poverty and the way that racism and other forms of inequality um, feed in and reproduce um, uh, this system that harms so many people, that harms more than half of the, uh, half of the nation. Thank you so much, because this is, these are questions that many privileged individuals, even privileged people of color, don't want to talk about. Mm. Um, They escape, quote unquote, poverty, and they don't ever want to look back um, if they were ever in poverty. And again, I always have to... um, um, temper my words. I'm not saying that every person of color is ever in poverty. Please right. do not. Yeah. But, um, and then those who are, and I talk about this a lot, that there is even in, amongst black, I, I'm going to speak for black people because I'm, uh, my ancestors are slaves and um, he, there's so much internal, internalized white supremacy and anti-blackness that we also oppress the poor. We mm. also change seats when they come on the bus and all these other things. We, it, it's, it's like ingrained in us. And so it's like, you, you never get to get to the cause of anything because we're always 
focusing on the effect. And that's how the system works in its favor because it just is like a distraction game. It's like a shell game. If I, if everybody's over here distracted with the moving ball up under the, those things, they don't see us Jeremy um, uh, redlining and Jeremy, they don't see all of that. Yeah. And they don't see how we uh, have um, rigged the election cycle that we've just gone through and all these other things. And I just posted a, um, an article and I can't, I'm not even going to lie. I can't even remember the city, but it was a, it was, I think it was in, yeah, it was in North Carolina. Cause that's where the, 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 the big fraud has happened. I'm, I live in Georgia and I, it's surprising me that there's an even bigger fraud happening somewhere else. Somewhere, anywhere else. Yeah. But this white guy says he has never voted. And what he's done is hand out, he signed his absent ballot and gives it to somebody else. And they, they vote for him. And he has no idea what these people are doing with his vote. And so now he's feeling disenfranchised. But it's like, how did you not... That, that totally baffles me. Um, that you would continually pull your vote as a poor person, hand it over to someone and not know what they're going to do with it. And you continue to be disenfranchised but the narrative of I'm better than black people, it, it, it helps you when you don't. So I want to, one example, I was, um, I was meeting with some people from Mozilla and there's this team, this international team that goes around the world and, and, and talks to communities that are a part of the digital divide, um, trying to get them access to resources and internet and stuff. And, and they, so one person was from Asia, one person was from Italy, and another person was, and I'm, I said Asian because I don't remember the country and I don't want to um, misspeak, and another one was from Portugal or something. So neither, none of them were from the U.S. Mm-hmm. And they went to a small town in Georgia, and they were like, Kim, I just don't understand. These people barely had anything. They had no internet, no, absolutely nothing but they refused to take our help because they saw themselves as being better than blacks. I was like, that's what it is. I have internet, I have heat, I have all these things in my house, but they still think that they're better than me because they're white. And so how do you get, particularly with the, the, with the election that we just com- have come out of, how do you get poor white people to start to align? It's not even about black. You don't have to do it on my behalf. I don't care. Black women are going to vote for black women. Why, why can, how, can you, how can we get poor white people to vote on their behalf? Because when black women vote, everybody benefits. If poor white people vote for their, benef- for their best interest, everybody benefits. Yeah, so I think there's like a lot to 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 pull open there. I'm going to push back on on one one please, aspect of please this, do please which do. is the idea that poor white folks are any more racist than any other white folks. Um, I think. Oh that, no, I, I no. I, 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 yeah, I misspoke. You know, oh, so. I misspoke. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I misspoke. No, 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 no. <laughs> I actually sometimes think this narrative that poor white people don't understand their own lives, don't understand their own interests, is actually a narrative that's created by professional middle-class white folks to project their racism on someone else, right? So like- Okay, let's talk about uh, that. Um, I, and I, I have to be really clear that I have not because my life has been uh, a, a maelstrom <laughs> for many reasons over the last two years. I haven't spent as much time with the um, election data, the Trump, particularly the Trump election data as I'd like to. But I will say that 
the this sort of like widespread idea among progressives that Trump is poor white people's fault strikes me as not intuitively true. <laughs> well, the data show that it's not intuitively true because it's yeah. white women with college, I mean, with, with college degrees. So that yeah. so <laughs> my understanding that is the median household income of Trump voters is well above $70,000. Yes, a year, exactly. Which puts them above the median. They're not anywhere near poor white people. Exactly. Um, right. Like we're smart. Uh, it's, it's so interesting. Like we're really smart about the, uh, the way that the media shapes the stories we hear about lots of people. Um, and, and there's a, but there's a way that we don't quite um, use those lessons when we're looking at poor white folks, right? So you get the like TV news image of a Trump rally and it's like six guys who honestly look like my Texas uncles, right? Like they're, they're like wearing stars and bars and they're like overweight and they're, uh, you know, maybe missing a tooth, but you don't, but you don't see like right behind them, the 18 bankers, right? Who are standing, who are like standing right behind them. Yeah. Yes, and I yes. think that we've created this story which allows progressive white people to ignore their own complicity um, in reproducing um, both classism and racism in a way that we're allowed to scapegoat poor white people um, as ignorant, as not understanding their own um, interests, as um, as more racist than other white people. Um, and I think that that's part of the problem, right? I Like, you know, if you then went to a poor white household and said, like, why are you voting against, why don't you understand your own life? They're going to be like, you know what, F you get the yeah, hell out yeah, of my yeah. house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I suspect that voting behavior among poor white folks is more complex than we're giving it credit than we're giving. And it thank credit. you for pointing that out because yeah. I agree. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Uh, my statement was that, my statement was yeah. very generalized. So yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely agree with that. And I also feel like poor white folks, just like many poor people of color, don't vote because they understand that ne- neither of the parties actually addresses. Oh, it, well, it's not just poor. It's, it's not just poor because yeah. I'm just going to tell you right now, I am not. And I say I could care less about red or blue. It's about can you meet my needs? And if you don't meet my needs, this is where this is where we keep getting in these foxholes. It's not. I don't care about. Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton or, 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 or Trump. I want to know, these are the things that are affecting people in my community. What are you doing about that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think for from my perspective, both as someone who did welfare rights organizing for a long time and uh, uh, as someone who uh, has a foot in um, I'm, I'm less of an organizer now, but as a journalist, I'm still trying to stay sort of embedded in social movements. So I still have a bit of a foot in, you know, what I think of as the larger poor people's movement, um, American poor people's movement. And um, there's just some incredibly exciting work going on, like thinking about how to do politics on the ground that is um, multiracial from the beginning. Um, yeah that centers poverty as a political identity, um, which is incredibly hard work in the United States, incredibly hard work. Talk about why that's hard. So it, it, because it requires acknowledging that you've experienced poverty and there's so much stigma um, and so Mm. much horizontal violence around poverty, right? Like, so one of, I think the most important lessons of my dozen or so years as a welfare rights organizer is um, that basically every single person in the public services system thinks they are the only person who used it right and everyone else is on the take. (laughs) And that's a hundred percent about horizontal violence, about us blaming each other, right? 
rather okay. than us aiming, aiming exactly where it needs to be. So, it's, so again, it's that, like I was saying before, that deflection, while we're arguing with each other, then we don't pay, we're def, we, um, don't pay attention to what's really going on. But my experience is also like um, that we can shed that pretty quickly if um, we um, spend time doing collective analysis of our lives. So uh, the best, uh, my favorite story about this is um, uh, when I was organizing at um, a YWCA, a residential YWCA in my hometown in, in Troy, um, we did this series um, about economic um, injustice. And one of the things we spent some time with was the self-sufficiency wage, which is basically a calculation of how much you would actually have to earn given where you live and your family composition to truly be, you know, self-sufficient as the government wants us all to supposedly Mm -hmm. be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's this really interesting exercise where rather than starting with the amount of money you have and then like being like, well, how can you possibly make it on this amount of money? You start from the other direction. You say like, how much do you actually need mm-hmm. in order to live a, a basic standard of safe, healthy life? Which means, you know, decent housing, healthcare, um, uh, you know, transportation, stuff like that, mm-hmm. uh, childcare. Um, and one of my favorite moments is we're doing this workshop around the, the self-sufficient wage and one of the women in the workshop is like doing this worksheet and she looks at it and she's like uh so it says i need to be making 30 dollars an hour and i'm like yeah so you know what do you think about that and she like looks at the number and she looks at me and she looks at the number and she looks at me and she says you know what i'm thinking is that my financial problems are not my financial problems they're society's financial yes and i would like yeah, let's talk about that. Yes. <laughs> so it's amazing like how quickly we can break it down if we're given the spaces to do it. Oh my God, th- you you just gave me such an aha because as you were talking, um, and I'm going to apologize because I did make a generalization because I've had, and that came from my own experience with white people in Georgia. Um, yep, and so I can enough. own that. I can own that. But you just get, but I'm always reaching out, trying to figure out how to reach across in, in, in ways that, first of all, keep me safe and, um, and help me align with other people. And I never thought of potential access to another powerful group of people that I never thought I could connect with. Yeah. And that's going to bring, that's bringing tears to my eyes because that's so powerful because they've always, I'm from Georgia. They've always been the enemy to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hear that. They've always been, if you're in a certain part of town, you can't drive through and, uh, or part of the state or um, whatever. And we see us constantly every single day. And it's, it's, it's helping me when I see these videos that we see often, it's like every single fucking day, another video comes out. Yeah it allows me to process it differently because my philosophy in life, do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? I want to be happy. And I don't want to see enemies everywhere I look. Yeah. And this is why I say, I don't hate white people. Just don't trust whiteness. That's just period. Um, 
And so white, white people shouldn't trust whiteness either. <laughs> you know what I mean? As a system. Yes. As a system, it, it hasn't done many of us much good. And that's, um, and, that's and, and I want to speak to that because I've been saying a lot uh, um, that whiteness, white supremacy, racism, all of these things are like a parasite. And for the first time, it's actively eating on whiteness. And this is where the angst and the pain is coming from. Because just like you said, the middle class and upper class, you could actually temper it down and blame it on the next un- under you, like those white people. Yeah. But now it's affecting everybody. Yeah. And that's where all of the like people, white people are realizing how complicit they've been in benefiting from privilege, unearned privilege. And they don't want to do that. People don't are realizing they've been harming the very groups of people they, they want, they love. These are people they have friends with and, and it's been trauma for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, I think we're seeing, um, uh, a, a lot of the the trauma that also just comes from straight precarity and struggle and like and and honestly not making it right. Like one yeah. of the things that is most challenging and and most um, sort of heartbreaking about welfare rights work is just how many members of our organization died over the you know dozen years of the organization. Um, existed. I mean, we lost, I don't know, a quarter or a third uh, of the membership to just totally, totally avoidable deaths. Um, and there's just real struggling happening. Man, that just reminds me of all the deaths that it are now we're seeing, we're seeing with the Ferguson yeah. um, organizers and how many yeah. of those organizers are dying unexplainably, geez, questionably wet, questionable ways. I never even, I, 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 it's great. Again, you're, you're, I love people who can draw parallels or draw connections because it's now I can see it is not about Ferguson. It's about the work that people are dying. It's the, that's kind of work mm. that is necessary, yeah. but is dangerous in so many other ways. Yeah. And for so many people who, who do work with, um, you know, incredible integrity and, and the work that will save their lives and the lives of folks in their communities are doing it with, with no net. Right. So they're yeah. doing oh, it yeah. with no health care. They're doing it yep, with no that's me. Yep. income. They're doing <laughs> yep. it with no, um, you know, um, ways to sort of process their own trauma. Yes. Uh, in ways that keep them healthy while doing the work. And there's ways, of course, to do all that stuff, but it's hard. And it's really hard when you lack access to your basic material needs. Um, And it it wears people down. So we lose people to addiction, we lose people to violence, we lose people to lack of health care, right? Totally avoidable deaths because they get sick. Oh my God, you're speaking to me right now. And I did not expect this, Virginia. (laughs) You're so speaking to me. And this is why I I, I get so frustrated when people question that I request to get paid. It's yeah. Like, mm-hmm. it's like that's Wells real. Fargo wants their money. Yeah. I don't have, if you, I mean, these, is, and, and we're in tech. So it's like, you go to your job, you do your eight hours or 20 hours or 60 hours, whatever you choose to do, you get a direct deposit either twice a month or once a month. And if that direct deposit is not in there, you are having a fit. Yeah. I am. And people like me who are doing this work are living on the margins. Yeah. I don't have healthcare. I, I, I went to the market, the, the, the cheapest thing, cause Georgia again, does not, um, uh, did not do the Medicare thing. 
So the cheapest insurance I saw was $500, over $500 a month. I can't afford that right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't have health, health insurance. Um, I have a car that's getting older. I have a house that needs repair. I have all of these things. People don't realize what people sacrifice to do the work for the community. And I'm not a martyr and I'm not trying to say that I'm better than anybody, but I'm doing important work. Yeah. And for people to question our value because we asked to be paid. Mm-hmm. It's really, ah, it just really just guts me. Yeah. And it's this combination both of, um, so, okay. (laughs) I have so many things to say right now. Um, Yes, please. Uh, Come on, come uh, on. One of them is that I, um, I sometimes have conflict around the movement critique of what they call the nonprofit industrial complex. Not that that doesn't exist, not that there aren't ways that particularly the 501c3 status does contain the kind of political work you can do. And yet I really want people to have health insurance and people really deserve health insurance. (laughs) And there are people who have, you know, families who need health insurance for their kids. Mm -hmm. And right, like, so there has to be a way that we can not, um, and I often feel like sometimes the critiques of of the nonprofit, uh, nonprofit industrial complex come from um, middle-class activists who have more resources mm-hmm. so they can have this like ideological stance of like, I won't take that money. Yes. Um, like, yes. You know, bless you if you don't have yes. to take yes. the money. Yes. Like for you, you can have this strong ideological I see this, and I see this, stance, with, I see this like, with speakers at conferences. Oh yeah. no, get, n- donate it to charity. Donate no, it to I'm the, like, <laughs> give me my money. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, this just happened to me. This just happened to me. Yeah. Um, I've been on Stack Overflow most of the year because Stack Overflow is not a place that's welcoming to marginalized individuals. It is not. I don't know so what that is. Stack Overflow is a, um, it's a platform. It's a knowledge management platform where developers go to get questions answered about code. They can see uh, code examples. They can do all these other kind of things. Mm-hmm. But it's not a place, and it's it's over ninety percent who are active on. Um, Stack Overflow, who critique or whatever, it's open source project basically, um, or white white males. Mm-hmm. And year after year after year, there's their survey shows that marginalized women, people of color, LGBTQ um, are not engaging on that platform. They go on there, find a <laughs> query and answer, and get right back off because to ask a question, you get shit on. I mean, it's just not a safe place. And I've been harping on them for so long because (sighs) so yeah, so they have this survey comes out every year and they had the nerve to send me an email asking me to provide some insight as an expert and they would give me either a $500 gift card or I can donate that to charity. I don't get paid in fucking gift cards. (laughs) What the hell? Do you not know my hourly rate? My hourly rates? What? Mm-hmm. But I'm supposed to do that for the community. I do enough free stuff for the community. Right. And Stack Overflow is not your community. Exactly. <laughs> and Stack Overflow is a for-profit business. So why would I be doing anything for right. a discount? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's it's that it's that whole. Um, I had someone recently said that I was. Um, it was. It was, um, she wasn't taking money because 
it it caused she realized in this work because it causes people to make un- unwise choices. No, no, no. It can that can happen. Just like you yeah. see in, 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 in nonprofits. That's why I told people they're like, are you a number? No, I'm not a nonprofit. I am a for-profit business. Mm-hmm. Um, because what I've seen in a lot of nonprofits is because I've worked in them and I've run them, is the um, you end up getting off mission trying to keep, keep the lights on. And I was like, sure. no, I don't want to do that. You know, yeah. trying to make sure your employees have health and health care. But this whole, why do people who, why are people, and it goes back to the question about your, the welfare thing and also automating um, inequality. I'm going to specifically talk about tech. Tech has a shitload of money. Yeah. Why are people, why are my skills at helping communities, organizations, and events be more inclusive so that you can benefit financially and, 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 and economically value and your reputation in the community. Why is that seen as less valuable than somebody who can code all day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's real. And I think it's, um, so I want to say one thing and then answer that one yes. thing mm-hmm. is you said earlier, um, uh, that, uh, someone told you that, uh, like uh, accepting money makes people make unwise choices. And I get, I get how that can happen. Like, like you said, um, but genuinely, I think not talking about, not talking about the money makes people make unwise choices, right? Like, and that's a different set of issues, right? And there's, I think there's probably, depending on who you are and what kind of work you're doing, there's money you probably shouldn't take, right? Like there's money that comes with strings. Mm -hmm. There is money that will shift how you feel about the work or the way you're able to do the work. And that should be part of a really big conversation Mm -hmm. about like how to resource the work. Everyone in the hashtag called the scene community shares the same common beliefs based on a set of four specific guiding principles. One, tech is not neutral, nor is it apolitical. Two, intention without strategy is chaos. Three, lack of inclusion is a risk and increasingly a crisis management issue. And lastly, but most importantly, four, we must prioritize the most vulnerable. To find out more about the guiding principles and adding them to your Twitter profile banner, please visit hashtag causeascene.com. Really about like how to resource the work. Um, but uh, I will also say that I find it enormously refreshing in the sort of American poor people's movement that they're like, take the money, you know, like, because like we, we need the money and we're going to yeah. take it. And that doesn't mean necessarily that we're going to change our ideology or we're going to change how we do the work. Um, but because it's a movement that's grounded in um, address meeting people in terms of their basic material needs, um, it, the money doesn't get caught up in the, uh, in, in the same kind of ideological tangles as it does in other, in other movements that I've been. Um, I've yeah. Been. And that's why when in this movement, I'm always, I'm always talking about money and I'm always telling them that my prices are set because I know that I'm creating a space that didn't exist. And I want to make sure that people come behind me. There's an expectation to pay them. And also I have to deal with a lot of bullshit. So there's a bullshit tax. Yeah, so there's I'm, a bullshit tax. Yeah. So it's so yeah. And yeah. and I talk about that often so that people get not to rub it in their faces or to brag, but to get people interested, I mean to start talking about paying for these services. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I feel like being really open about it also helps us create, uh, it's also part of that larger work of like talking about how resources are distributed, yes. talking about our experiences with precarity and our experiences with economic oh, yeah. <laughs> struggle um, and being more real in the way we talk about um, this thing that is just cloaked in so much stigma. I mean, none of us can admit that we need help. Um, and, and then we all and then, need help. At some and then that helps people under, try to figure out how they can help us. Yeah. Because yeah. if they don't know that I don't have health insurance, if they don't know that I don't have whatever and I'm doing these yeah. things, they don't know what I need. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you a story about like how deep this sort of self denial run. So, you know, like I said, I did uh, um, welfare rights work for uh, organizing for a long time. A really big part of our work um, as part of a national coalition called the Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign, which I'm a huge fan of, um, led out of Philadelphia by two activists, um, Sherry Honkala and Galen um, Tyler, who are amazing, thoughtful, um, incredible folks. Um, And one of the keys to their work is um, shifting the definition of poverty so more people can see themselves inside poverty as a political identity. So mm-hmm. they're, uh, the way they define poverty as against the way we defined it at the beginning of this conversation as falling under this arbitrary income line, the way they define it is if at any point you have lacked access to one of your basic economic human rights, mm. then, you know, congratulations, you can count yourself among the poor. So that wow. is, that's housing, that's food, that's basic social services, that's health care, that's education, mm-hmm. that's the right to communication so you can claim those rights. Family integrity, right? If you've lost a child to CPS, like, guess what? You're poor um, yeah. because you're, you're lacking one of these economic human rights. So this is very complicated, difficult work to, to, to help people see themselves inside an identity of uh, uh, inside poverty as a political identity but we were really committed to doing this work so we did a lot of work that was like collecting um, testimony about violations of people's economic human rights did a lot of work around having these um, sort of spaces of witness like the the world court of women where we you know gathered hundreds of people together to share their stories and and sort of compare their experiences um, and uh, so this this work was very much about like identifying uh, as a public assistance recipient, identifying um, as a poor person, as part of the political work um, in order to build political identity. Um, But for years and years and years, I said, right, I'm deeply committed to this work. This is why I care about economic inequality, but I have not myself um, ever received public assistance. And then like a year ago, I went to this conference where we were talking about Universal Lifeline, which is um, government subsidized access to tools of communication. So uh, what's now called the Obama phone, right? Mm-hmm. This is the cell phone, the mm-hmm. subsidized cell phone. Um, and in the past was just, uh, was access, um, subsidized access to landline telephones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I went to this conference, we're talking about Universal Lifeline. And I, you know, I, I, t- I talked to this woman, and I'm like, oh yeah, Universal Lifeline is so important. Like I was on that for years. Mm-hmm. And then there's this light bulb that goes on over my head where I'm like, Jesus, it happened to me. Like so deep was my denial of my own experience being economically precarious that I had erased the fact that I had received public assistance for years. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, my family's applied for food stamps. And, um, you know, so there's this way that the, um, the stigma around poverty and particularly the stigma around asking for and receiving help. Mm hmm. 
cause yeah, because there's so such that we can't, we actually erase that part of our own lives. Yeah. Because I mean, listen story. to politicians talk about the poor and, and people yes. asking for help. Um, and I want to segue into, uh, this is so, been, you've made so many connections for me and now I want to say, yeah, you have, I'm just deeply touched by this podcast. Oh, and um, I also, I want to say one yes. thing before we move on to the book. We'll talk about my book. But yes. Yes. Other things to yes. Um, so one of the things that I think is also really important is recovering the history of multiracial poor people's movement, right? So this is something that has happened in the past. It will happen again and it is happening now. It will continue to happen in the future. And I think it's really important to recover those histories. So we have a space of hope of like, it can be different. Um, like, and we don't have to fall for the line that we can't work together. Um, so I think, um, like one of the things I did in automating inequality is try to tell both a, um, a, a class-oriented but race-informed story about how poverty policy developed in the United States. Um, and I think one of the most powerful stories I was able to tell, though only briefly in the book, is the story about um, American eugenics mm. um, and the way that it was um, both a white supremacist project and an anti-poor project. Mm. Um, because part of that project, I mean, the I think we've had really good conversations about the deep deeply racist and anti-immigrant, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, underpinnings of that um, scientific movement. Um, but I think part of the story that's missing is that it, is that it was also a story of um, limiting the reproduction of poor white people to basically like cleanse the white race from within. So that part of white supremacy has always been focused on... Um, uh, on controlling and eradicating poor white people. And you, uh, and you see that, saw that, um, I'm a hist- I love history and a researcher, um, in Germany, um, during World War II or prior to World War II and doing with, um, Levensborn, mm-hmm. um, and how the, the, you know, trying to get the perfect Aryan and you're breeding, um, these, so the so the soldiers were allowed to have multiple encounters, and these women took on these roles as just breeders. Yeah. Um, but it was not everybody. It was specific individuals, and then the mentally ill, the poor, or whatever, were exterminated. Yeah. And it became like um, uh, these, these uh, you know, supposed moral failings of poor people became things that were understood as like genetics. So yeah. like, um, you know, sexual depravity, which also just meant rape, you yeah. know, like yeah. being a victim of rape um, or um, idiocy, which often meant just like not doing well at school. At a, you know, um, these things became reasons um, to, and, and we see that with IQ tests as yeah. well. We, yeah. Oh my God. So, oh, yeah. I love so, data people. I love data people. <laughs> so this, so this, this, this movement that we also, we, we often think of solely as a racist movement and there is deep racism mm-hmm. at part of it. And that is absolutely true. But the part of that history that I want to make visible in the book is that it was also a deeply anti-poor movement, that those two things are, are really entwined with each other throughout our history. And, um, and we that's also why we have to be allies to each other. And that's um, what um, you, um, have you listened to the podcast Seeing White by Seen on Radio? I have not. Oh my God. They, it's a 14 part series and they actually 
evaluate break down whiteness mm-hmm. and and the um ibram can hmm, dr i think his name is ibram yeah ibram candy no is it yeah he wrote stamp well the name of the book is wrote stamped from the beginning and mm-hmm. so it's a yeah. historical perspective and he yeah. talks about how he gives that perspective of black poor blacks and poor whites were aligned after the civil war um um but and when wealthy whites saw that they made the divide between they made the race thing that's when whiteness became so important mm. so that the 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 poor whatever color they were wouldn't see themselves as allies and yeah. so and again i want to thank you for opening that door that pandora's box <laughs> um to see that there is alignment with white poor people that I saw, but I'm going to be honest, was a, have been afraid to broach mm. because of the my historical. Um, yeah. And it goes back to when you said before about go doing this work and processing my own trauma as I do this work, yeah. um, and giving myself space for that. Um, and a lot of people don't, and after, and and this is where I can say I have a good community when they they can hear it in my tweets or whatever. And they're like, I get these DMs. Are you okay? Do you need to take a break? And so we need those lifelines. And so, um, I don't know. I think I went off on the tangent because this just feels, this is feeding my soul because it's, I don't, again, do I want to be right? or do I want to be happy. And I want to be happy and being happy is aligning with people and we can move these agendas forward for all of us because we're trying to create a world that was never meant to exist. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't want to downplay the incredible the incredible difficulty of doing that work. Almost that definitely, really challenging. Work. Hell, it's it's difficult to get yeah. middle middle class white people to realize that they're complicit. So I know. <laughs> yeah, and and it's um it requires challenging not only the um you know the deep racism of um all economic spectra of white people, but also the classism of yeah. some middle class professional middle class people of color as yes. well. And that yes. is a really challenging conversation to have. Uh, One that I have failed at many times (laughs) and have succeeded at a couple of times. Um, But there is, um, there is, but I mean, as you said, sort of at the top of the conversation, I mean, there are 18 million poor people of color in this country and 15 million poor white people. And that's what, like, we're getting close to 40 million people. That's Mm -hmm. a, that's a good movement. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's some I don't know, half of them would still be a really yes, strong movement. Exactly. Hell a third um, of them would be, yeah, would be so because it it'll yeah. I mean I feel like it's important work and it's happened before. So that the last thing I wanted to say um on on this is um just to suggest to the listeners this amazing book um called Hillbilly Nationalists, Urban Race Rebels and Black Power, which is about um the um the very intentional um multiracial work among poor people that happened immediately following the Poor People's Campaign of 1968. Um, And there's this sort of amazing history of the way that um, groups that were explicitly talking about themselves as poor white groups like JOIN um, were... um, uh, part of um, some very conscious coalition building with the Black Panthers and the Brown Berets and and other folks um, to try to understand where 
these different versions of identity politics met and where they didn't and what work that could um, could happen together. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty amazing history and it feels um, really crucial to me because I think we often have in our heads that this work has never happened before and can't and maybe can't happen because it's never happened before, but it has and we and, just don't and, tell the stories. And that's again where I always say that whiteness is so ignorant of its, of its own history because it's been it's it's you know it's been fed one version of it and 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 for people when they talk about Martin Luther King this is why Martin Luther King was killed because of the poor people's movement and the powers that be it wasn't because he was talking about simple I mean, black people whatever it was the fact that he was galvanizing they people were starting to have those conversations you're just talking about and they started seeing the power of all these numbers again Oh, we can't have all these people coming together. Um, so we have to, and and it, and it, and those things fell apart. So thank you for bringing that up because it was a part of it. And this is what I, I, gets frustrates me to no end when people when we have these conversations, particularly online about civil rights or whatever. Everybody wants to bring up the Martin Luther King "I Have a Dream" speech. I was like, that was so at the beginning of his work. <laughs> he is so shifted by the time he developed. Was, yeah, yes. He developed. Yeah. yes, he was becoming more radical. He's he was he was becoming more aligned with Malcolm X at that point. Um, and so, don't freeze him or anybody else in yeah. a space. Let us evolve as we learn. Um, and I want to, I do want to talk about the book because I want to know how you got from that work to talking about automating inequality. Yeah, so um, this is, I mean, it's largely following where the people I worked with led. So um, early in um, my life as a sort of, as an organizer and as a scholar, um, I did a lot of participatory action research in and specifically in this community of folks who live in a residential YWCA um, in in my hometown in Troy. Um, And I had come out of the community technology center movement and believed very um, strongly that access was like maybe the most important social justice issue around technology um, and cities particularly um, uh, that was sort of that was coming at us. And this was maybe in the mid to late 90s for me. Um, and so I did a lot of community technology center work. I worked in, um, when I lived in the Bay Area in the 90s, I worked in East Palo Alto and the Mission District in, in, in San Francisco, sort of developing community resources um, and, and skill building. Um, when I moved to Troy, I continued to work mostly with youth um, and mostly in public housing. Um, and but the big sort of a big shift moment for me was when I moved from working with youth who had really complicated lives and there was a lot going on for them. Um, but technology was never a hard sell for them, right? Like you got them online. They like played games. They, they like listened to music. They did their thing. They, they, they built stuff. They did cool stuff. It was never a, a hard sell though. Um, and then moving to a community of adult women who were working at, uh, who were living um, at the Y. Um, And that was a different kind of a story. So we built all these sort of amazing shared technological resources that were, it was sort of this this, um, extensive collaborative design process. Um, And, but the resources continued to not be used very much. And um, it sort of um, 
created a series of conversations that ended with a bunch of women in the community basically being like sort of patting me on the knee and being like, Virginia, we really like you. But basically all the questions you're asking have nothing to do with our lives. And um, I was like, oh, (laughs) okay. Like if we're doing this wrong, Mm -hmm. how how can we do it better? Like, Mm -hmm. what am I missing? Help me understand. Um, And basically the story they told me was that the sort of central idea that the problem was that they lacked access to technology was wrong. Um, And that they actually had... Um, sort of technological ubiquity in their lives across the criminal justice system, their na- in their neighborhoods, in the low-wage high-tech workplace. Like a third of them were working in high-tech work, but it was like call center work and data entry work and these, this other work that was not economically sustainable for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the place that they told me was the most important place they came into contact with technology was the welfare office. And that just blew my mind because it, um, you know, inverted everything I thought about technology and many of the things I thought about, uh, about poverty. Um, right. Cause we have this understanding as poverty as a lack of things when in fact, poverty is a, is a position in a relationship of structural exploitation. Um, and so what they told me is we're not lacking technology, just the technology we interact with in our everyday lives is exploiting us, is extracting Ooh. information from us, oh. is extracting labor from us, mm. is surveilling us. Mm. And this is like the late 90s and early 2000s. So it was super mind-blowing for me. Like as a professional middle-class white person, like I was like, this it does not align with my experience at all. Mm-hmm. And I have a ton to learn. Yes. Um, and so we spent many years after that sort of untying that knot. Um, and my first book, Digital that end is about that process is about what we learned in, in community and and how you can sort of take that to do um, other kind of tech, uh, digital justice work um, but the insight that stayed with me um, over many years was this insight that uh, how much interaction with technology people were having in the public assistance office and how important it was to the ways they were able to um, be self-determined be or not be self-determining and autonomous, right? So the the sort of um, paradigmatic story of that is um, a woman I worked really closely with in this work uh, who goes by a pseudonym in the book, Dorothy Allen. Um, in 2000, we were sitting in the, the lab that we had built. Um, she was part of this sort of design team. Um, and we were talking, just sort of shooting the breeze about technology. And we were talking specifically about her electronic benefits transfer card, her EBT card, which is mm-hmm. the like debit-like card that many public service benefits come on. Um, and they were pretty new in New York State in 2000. So we were just sort of talking about it. Um, and I had said something like, you know, I hear from people that it's more convenient, that there's maybe a little less stigma in the grocery store. You know, what do you think? And she said, well, you know, yes and no on that. But my caseworker uses them, uses my the digital records from my EBT card to basically track all of my purchases and my mm. So I'll go into the office and she'll say, you know, for example, why are you spending all this money on groceries at the corner store? Don't you know it's cheaper to go to the grocery store? And um 
So this was like a real realignment for me around like who we need to be listening to about the shape of technology to come. Like the realization yes. was that Dorothy was living in the technical future. Yes. And she acknowledged that really clearly. She said, because like, <laughs> I must have had this super shocked look on my face because she like laughed at me for a really long time, just kind of like clutched her stomach and cried, like cry laughed at me for a while for being naive. Um, and then she got like kind of more quiet and more thoughtful. And she was like, oh, Virginia, like you all, meaning like professional middle-class people, you all should pay attention to what's happening to us because they're coming. And we're seeing, and we're and that's that's the parasite part I'm talking about because now it's here. It's and that was here. 20 years ago, yes. right? So it's like, here. we need to be talking to Dorothy, right? Yes. Like, in order to do this work correctly, yes. Um, and in and order to do this work in ways that will save our lives, like we have to be talking to the people who are yes. most direct targets of these most exploited. And this is why move fast and break shit does not work, does because, not work. You don't, <laughs> because you don't learn from it. This yep. is why te- um, f- uh, Facebook and Twitter have been complicit in these election frauds and they don't understand because um, I did a podcast, um, Tech's Attack on Black Women. Mm-hmm. Yep, I saw that. Because you, you don't listen. We've been on Twitter. We tell you constantly who are the quote unquote bad people. because they're coming after us but you don't listen to us you want to put these these arbitrary everybody's on the same playing field um rules in place and i keep saying if you don't we'll never get that we don't prioritize the needs and safety of the most marginalized and vulnerable in our communities yeah and so dorothy speaks to that and you said that was 20 years ago yeah it was 2018 years ago but still a long time ago and that's what we're seeing now that's what we're seeing now with all these data breaches with all these all these vulnerable um but let but let's be honest it was dorothy so who no one cared you know it's only now because it's affecting you know, Mark Zuckerberg said they took his stuff, his data. Now it's something we need to be concerned about. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. And I wasn't even, I was, I was playing with technology back then. But, um, and you, what you speak to, I want to bring that back around to, to the beginning of this conversation when I said I'm going to have a, a guest on here who talks about public housing. Because what you're talking about is the 21st century version of what happened to those families. So not only did they tell them that they couldn't, that they sold them um, a bag of... So one story I saw was there was a family of 12 and the father had to leave the state for them to go into this. And they decided as a family, it was best interest for the kids to go to this, to this um, to public housing. But when you're in public housing, they can come in at any time. They could go through your drawers. Yep. They could yep. check whatever you had. I had people who told me, because I used to work in uh, Cabrini Green um, housing projects in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was, I'm a, I was a youth worker. So yeah. I, I, when you said the youth thing, I totally get it. Yep. And I was talking to one of the parents and she was like, when she was growing up that they even had to, cause else you remember the, the phones were wired to the wall. They yep. had to hide the phones because it was considered to us. That's just a line of a communication. Luxury. You just said yep. that, but they yep. saw that as a luxury. Yeah. So, and this is one of the things that becomes, so that, that story is like the story of like how I got on the path to doing the work that mm-hmm. I do now, but you're really pointing to something that I think is a, a central tension in an important tension to sort of puzzle through about the work, which is 
So these practices like spying on poor and working people is not new. Like this is, we have a super long history of doing this. Um, And in fact, these tools often sort of masquerade as ways to counter that kind of older bias, right? Like, so for example, um, we know that frontline caseworker discretion has been something that has blocked people of color from getting access to the resources that they are entitled to deserve and need to keep their families uh, healthy and safe. Like that is real. Um, Mm -hmm. And that has been real since the social security act in 1935. Um, But it's also really important to understand that um, we see these digital tools start to uh, arrive in public services Um, right at the time that people who are on public assistance start to express their power most strongly. Um, So part of the story of how automating inequality came came about is I was um, really interested in the ways that decision-making and welfare had become digitized and when that had happened. And so I spent some time in the New York State Archives thinking that um, these design documents would have showed up in the 90s around the time when welfare reform, the 1996 welfare reforms, required that a number, that all of the the local um, public assistance offices automate um, particularly eligibility calculations, but a number of the sort of decision-making processes that used to have more human discretion in them. So I thought maybe those systems had arisen around the ni- in the mid-1990s. But, but I, I go to the New York State Archives. I start looking in the archives. 1996, they're already there. The welfare management system's already there. I, I'm like, okay, well, maybe it was the 80s <laughs> when the technology became available, mm-hmm, right? Like, mm-hmm. more widely available. Must have been the 80s. So I go back to the 80s already there. Welfare management system's already there. I'm like, well, that's weird. This is way <laughs> earlier than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. I keep going back in the archives and I find out that the, the moment that they start to design and implement these tools is actually the late 60s and early 70s. Mm-hmm. And that gives us a really different perspective on like what political problem these tools were supposed to solve. Solve, exactly. And the problem was that there was an incredibly well-organized, powerful movement um, of mostly women of color um, called the National Welfare Rights Movement um, Mm -hmm. that was pushing, had a really, a, a number of strategies, but one of their strategies was a very conscious legal strategy that was pushing back on discriminatory eligibility rules like man in house, like like suitable home, like employable mother that had largely been uh, deployed in the past to block women of color from receiving public assistance. Mm -hmm. Not just women of color, actually also never married mothers, you know, sexual minorities, like lots of folks who who are considered not moral enough. Exactly public assistance. So they had been blocked by those rules in the past. So the national welfare movement comes along. um, They mount all of these challenges to these um, illegal rules and they win. Right. So they overturn these rules like one after the, you know, the, the other year after year. Um, and at the same time, there's a backlash against the civil rights movement happening mm-hmm. um, and a huge recession. And so these political figures in the middle of this sort of tough historical moment where there's pressure to roll back public assistance at the same time that they've made all of the strategies they used to use to keep the rolls low illegal. Mm-hmm. And that's the moment that we see the first of these digital systems designed is like as exactly that moment. And so there's, that, there's um, a way that we talk about these tools as being 
both more efficient and more objective, um, but actually they're political problem-solving machines. And the problem that they're solving is too many people were accessing the resources that they have a legal right to. And so we should not then be surprised when they continue to do that just faster and with more math, which is what I think is, is happening in, in public assistance around these technological. Tools. And it's so funny because I talk about this all the time and we talk about, and this is, a, this is one of the reasons I, uh, I, I, um, target I've targeted stack overflow and and because you don't know it it's because so many people um algorithms are not unbiased humans create algorithms and humans are biased individuals and my concern and we're starting to see it is because people are there's only a a homogenous voice that's actively engaging on Stack Overflow. You're finding people who are grabbing code and coming back out. They're not evaluating. There's no conversation about it whatsoever. Um, And and so with the proliferation of machine learning, um, artificial intelligence, and deep learning, I have a deep concern about us propagating and and um, bias technologies because people are just going there and copying and pasting and coming back out. Yep. Yep. And I can give you a really good concrete example of that. So one of the tools that I look at in the book is called the Allegheny Family Screening Tool. And it is this um, statistical model that's supposed to be able to predict which children are victims, might be victims of abuse or neglect in the future in Allegheny County, which is the county where Pittsburgh is in Pennsylvania. Um, And um, one of the things that's really fascinating about the system without getting too like deep into the technical weeds um, is the designers have talked about it as way as a way to do sort of digital triage to make sure that um, you know people who are families that are most at risk um, get um, attention and resources more quickly and they've also talked about it as a way to be able to identify where bias is entering the system because Allegheny County like pretty much every county in the United States has huge issues with racial disproportionality in their foster care system so 38% of kids in foster care in Allegheny County are black or biracial well they're only 19% of the youth population um, mm. so they're more than twice yeah. Um, yeah. as likely to end up in foster care as they should be based on their proportion in the, in the population. So there's this set of frontline workers called um, call screeners. Um, and they're the folks who sit and get calls from the abuse and neglect hotline and also get reports from mandated screeners, I'm sorry, mandated reporters around abuse and neglect. Um, and they're the ones who decide um, which cases should be screened in for full investigation and which cases should be screened out, like that they're not pressing enough that they, that, that they should be investigated. Mm-hmm. Um, and the administrators in Allegheny County told me that one of the things they hoped was that um, this new, um, this new uh, statistical model will collect information that will help them be able to help them identify patterns of discriminatory decision-making that are happening at intake screening, Mm -hmm. Um, which seems totally reasonable. Like, yeah, it makes sense. It it makes sense in theory. Intuitively, intuitively smart. Um, Like maybe that's, you, you think there's a human being on the front line. We have implicit and explicit bias. This is probably a place that discrimination is entering the system. And if we collect more data, we can identify patterns and we can address them. Mm -hmm. 
The reality, though, is the county's own research shows that that's not the point at which discrimination is actually entering the system. It's actually entering the system much earlier um, around it, at call referral. That is who gets reported. Um, so black and biracial families are getting are reported, reported more. three and a half times more often than mm-hmm. white families. Mm-hmm. Um, once that case gets in the system, um, there is a little bit that's added by the by the intake call screeners. They screen in 69% of cases about black and biracial families and only 65% of cases that are about white families. Mm-hmm. But that's a 4% difference versus mm-hmm. a 350% difference mm-hmm. at the, the point at, the, at which... At the beginning. Yeah. The beginning, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So it feels to me like this tool is actually a very sophisticated, expensive, and resource-intensive tool that is aimed at the place that the problem isn't happening. And um, that happens so much when, you, when, you, when, you, when your needs assessment does not, you're solving, they're trying to solve the wrong problem. Yeah, so it feels like we that it is a solution in search of a problem mm-hmm. rather than us addressing the problem mm-hmm. directly. And the direct problem is a cultural problem. Yes. Which in the United States, yep. we see a healthy, safe family as looking in a very specific way. Yes. And that is white. Yes rich yes. and heterosexual. Yes. Um, and other families are seen as innately risky. And now the real issue, like the real, the reason that we really have to push back on these ideas that computerized decision-making is more objective and more neutral than human decision-making is it actually, if we allow that algorithm then to remove the human discretion of call screeners, it actually opens the floodgate to this much higher level of discrimination that's entering earlier in the system. exactly Because there may be a way that human discretion is actually holding that back. Yeah, because um, you're saying it's 300%. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, versus a couple of percent at Yeah, end. yeah. And that's um, where we need... And, and, and a, a problem with that um, is that we in technology have done a really good job of getting the average consumer or the average um, um, person in society to believe that we have all the answers. Yeah. So they don't see, if they're not doing the research that you are doing more, way more in depth than I'm doing, they take that as, oh, those computers are perfect. We've taught them that computers are perfect. And so they wouldn't think to say, hey, what about your algorithm? (laughs) You know? And the, and there's this sort of troubling ph- philosophical shift that I saw across all the cases that I reported on for the book, which is this idea that human decision-making is somehow opaque and unknowable, and computerized decision-making is somehow objective and transparent. Um, and I think I do a really good job showing why the computerized decision-making is not objective mm-hmm. or transparent. Um, but I think one of the things that we really have to focus on is the earlier part of that equation. This idea that human decision-making is unknowable is deeply troubling. To yes. Me. Um, because the reality is, of course, we all have implicit and explicit bias that we need to like engage. But you can't engage it unless you acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. And we're by moving those decisions to machines, we're actually avoiding acknowledging. Actually doing the work. 
Yeah. That, yeah. That is the work that says you can talk to somebody about why they make the decisions they make. You can help them understand mm-hmm. if they're making um, decisions that are uh, discriminatory in structured ways. And the goal is for us to all move towards ethical development, mm-hmm. right? It's not to say like, well, human beings are just going to discriminate. That's just human nature. So we need these machines to do it instead. And I have this very smart political science friend named Joe Sauce. And Joe says that... Um, uh, discretion is like energy. Um, it's never created or destroyed. It's only ever moved. Um, and so the reality is when we talk about these tools removing discretion from these systems, what they're actually doing is moving discretion from one group of people to another group of people. So in Allegheny County, for example, we're removing discretion from frontline um, workers um, from in these intake call screeners who are the most racially diverse, the most working class, the most female part of the um, the uh, workforce there. And we're moving it to the computer scientists and economists yeah. who are yeah. building these models. And I think, again, coming back, like circling back around mm-hmm. to the beginning of our conversation, that's about professional middle class, mostly white people, but also some people of color, projecting yes. racial discrimination yes. onto poorer people um, who are actually closer to the problems that they're making decisions about than the the model makers. And this speaks so why we need diverse teams because you don't have the perspective that you don't have my lived experience or my perspective to answer certain questions. Yeah. And oh my. hmm. So the frontline workers there, I think had some of the most profound and important critiques of the system, right? Sure. Around Mm -hmm. false positives. They had real concerns about the limitations in the data set because the data, the data that they're collecting is only collected on really on poor households. Yes. Because the data can only be collected about people who are reaching out to the state or the county for help, Mm -hmm. right? So if you have a baby, if you can afford to pay a babysitter out of pocket, you don't end up in the data set. Yeah. you get addiction counseling, but you pay for it with um, private insurance from your employer, you do not end up in the data set. Mm -hmm. So the data set is already structured by class in profound ways. Um, And so there's all this possibility to actually amplify discrimination um, in ways that the humans... And scale it. And scale it. (laughs) And scale it. In ways that the humans totally understand Mm -hmm. um, and are actually pushing back on, um, unfortunately, in ways that often get talked about as like, oh, they just don't, you know, they're just scared. They're like, yeah. they're afraid their jobs are going to get automated. Yeah. So yeah. they're, just, but they're really concerned about the families that they are interacting with um, and the impacts that these tools are going to have on those families. Because uh, bottom line, these, these systems have impact on humans. Yeah. And it's a, and I think it's as much a labor issue as it is an issue of um, targeting um, and punishment of poor and working families. This has been a marvelous conversation. I can tell you and I can just talk about this nauseum. <laughs> so I would like to add, give you a moment to, how would you like to end this conversation? I, I well, I mean, I, first I just really want to express my appreciation for, there aren't many, I think part of the issue that we're struggling with together is that there are not many places that I have discovered um, either in like, ways we talk publicly in print or in person or even in movement work 
to talk um, with realness about these really complicated relationships between race and class. Um, and so I really appreciate the opportunity to think through that stuff with you in public because um, I think though I, I feel really strongly that these are these kinds of conversations um, uh, are things that we uh, we really need to have them right now. Yeah. Right. Like the fact that you can't. One of the maybe silver linings, I hesitate to call it, is that there are any silver linings to the Trump administration. But perhaps one of the silver linings of the Trump administration is the um, how much it makes clear that we cannot separate out um, our understandings of racism, classism, sexism, anti-immigrant, um, you know, behavior, heterosexism, right? Like how much we need to be engaging these things all at the same time. And I think we we get that on the philosophical level, but I think actually doing the work is really hard. And it takes a great deal of trust and a great deal of courage. And I just really appreciate the opportunity to, to, to have that the, this conversation in a way that other people can listen to it. And thank you for um, coming on because I can tell you people hear me all the time. I'm happy he's president personally because I don't get, we don't no longer get the, oh, the racism was dealt with in the sixties. And then, right. I mean, it is out in the open. Um, this is not post-racial. This is, um, there are people who were pissed off for eight years and before that, um, and put some things in motion. So I, to, for, I, I tell people I couldn't have this platform. I couldn't have this podcast. I couldn't do any of this hashtag cause the scene if it weren't not for our current climate. So I'm very appreciative of that. I wouldn't have this whole, any of this, I wouldn't be questioning any of this because again, I was that middle-class upper middle class black person, you know, person of color who was getting by, you know, not questioning anything. I was, um, I was pushing more than most people, but it wasn't this way. So yeah, I I appreciate it. I mean, hell, he can say anything. That means I can, I don't have this privilege. So I can say almost, almost anything. (laughs) It has been, it has been very clarifying. This administration has been very clarifying. Yeah. It's, 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 it's no longer gaslighting people for people like that just doesn't feel right. It's out in the open. And that's, these are the things that we can have the conversations about. So I'm so happy that you came on because again, you've just opened my eyes and I'm very, I'm very happy um, then I'm like, oh, okay, that just gave me some, cause people are like, why are you so optimistic? Because I see opportunities. Yeah. I see opportunities where other yeah. people are just like, oh yes, it could be, it's a shit show, but I still see opportunities. <laughs> yeah. I take great joy in this work. Um, but mostly cause the company is so good, right? Yeah. Like, um, not that anybody's perfect. <laughs> like, yeah. I think, you know, poor and working people are the same percentage assholes as everyone yes. else. Um, <laughs> that's what it means to be fully human is yes. like also to be a jerk. Um, Um, but, um, one of the things that, uh, sort of, I, I refer to myself as a hard one optimist. Like, I think I was a lot more cynical before I started doing this work. I was too. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, where I won my optimism was just, um, being with folks who, um, really struggle to meet their basic needs, um, and yet manage to be like accountable to collective decisions and approach the work with like humor and generosity. Um, and, uh, it leaves me no space to, to, uh, to be cynical. Mm-hmm. Um, just, I, I, I take, uh, incredible inspiration, um, from what people are able to achieve, um, just, um, on their own strength and the strength of their communities. And so, yeah, I find the work really exciting and really filled with 
joy. Like, I feel really lucky yeah. to be doing it. So, okay, we'll end that on resilience. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show, Virginia. It's been amazing. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate this conversation. All right. Have a great day. You too. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Hashtag Cause the Scene podcast. And I'd like to thank all our current sponsors of the podcast and the Hashtag Cause the Scene movement. Of course, we strongly encourage everyone to become an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Cause the Scene community. Just visit the website at HashtagCalledTheScene.com to sign up today. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Call the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.